the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Maybe the best pump music for my next guest. I hold in my hand, if you are watching on YouTube or on my Facebook feed, Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. Last Stands is by Michael Walsh, who's been a guest on the show often, and he's a longtime critic, uh, music critic for Time Magazine, foreign correspondent, written a lot of great books, but Victor Davis Hanson blurbs the front. Now, VDH, of course, if you can get a blurb from anyone, and Victor Hansen says this, a philosophical and spiritual defense of physical courage and of masculinity and self-sacrifice in an age when those ancient virtues are too often caricatured and dismissed. Michael Walsh, welcome. It's good to have you, my friend. Oh, thanks, you. Good morning to you and the whole wide American world here. Well, I want to I wanna really have you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this. Because um, I know one hero for sure. Bill Barber, like your father, is a veteran. He's gone now, but he was a veteran of the Chosen Reservoir. And he took me once to meet the Frozen Chosen to give a talk to the Frozen Chosen. And I said, what am I going to tell these men about? How am I going to talk to the Frozen Chosen? And it turns out your dad was in the fame 2-5. He was in the 2-7, I believe, uh, Bill. But tell people about growing up with a dad who's a hero. Well, the thing is, you don't know it uh, if they're doing it right. And, of course, uh, I was born just before he shipped out to Korea. He landed. The war started in June of 1950. Uh, He landed uh, at the Pusan perimeter. Uh, As I recount in the introduction to Last Stands, he jumped in a shell crater there at the perimeter as a 24-year-old first lieutenant, brand-new first lieutenant, and found some soldiers, Marines, hiding in the, taking shelter, rather, in the in the shell hole. He said, who's in charge here? And they said, you are, sir. And as I point out in the book, he's now about to turn 95, and he's never not been in charge. That said, he never really spoke about Korea. Uh, I knew he'd fought there. Uh, obviously, my brother and I were raised in the Marine Corps tradition, uh, and that includes lots of practical survival training and weapons handling and all sorts of things that your average five-year-old uh, doesn't generally uh, have to encounter. But it was it was just part of what he felt had kept him alive uh, during those uh, very, very tough few months there uh, at the reservoir and uh, on the Marines' way back to the sea. And uh, it stood him in good stead, and he figured he would it would stand his sons in good stead, too. So here I am 71 years later, so it must have worked. Well, I, I was telling the fetching Mrs. Hewitt last night, uh, my father was an army man and sailed around the Pacific on boats and never heard a shot fired in anger. But his brothers flew over the hump and, and over Europe 40 times. And physical courage was simply a given in the greatest yes. generation. You know, you just, it was a given. My father-in-law fought in Guadalcanal, on Guam, on Iwo Jima, and never discussed it. 
So the question is, courage is like all virtues necessary, but it's the first virtue because it's the virtue on which all others depend. Do you think we have a leakage of courage in the country? Well, I think it's just, this this book is really, a, a, I, I like to say, only half-jokingly, in praise of toxic masculinity. I think we have a masculinity crisis. I don't think these young boys today, because of the way our society is now structured, uh, know whether they have courage in them or not. What you'll find, uh, as you know, Hugh, and I, I spent a couple of days interviewing my dad for this book two or three years ago, uh, they don't think about it. They, it. It was not something that occurred to them. As he put it, after the Chinese attacked there in late November of 1950, by surprise in the middle of the night, he said, you just follow your training and you go to work. He said, we went to work. And by work, he meant he was in command of uh, of a mortar company uh, attached to various rifle companies. And so he set up and began that deadly work that triangulated mortars can do on a masked enemy and and basically that's all he had time to think about uh i once asked him were you scared and he looked at me like i was crazy but then again he's a marine so there you are well i, I began by learning something brand new i always love a book that begins with something that teaches me something immediately i didn't know about the battle of seoul i knew about pusan i knew about Incheon. i knew about the throwback i knew about chosen i did not know about the battle of seoul and that it was among the most brutal battles. It's Guadalcanal level of intensity. It's it's Okinawa level of intensity. And I had no, Fallujah, I had no idea. Yeah, it was an urban battle. He doesn't talk about it. He, I, I couldn't draw him out on that. I, I know the Marines, you know, Seoul was recaptured and lost and recaptured. There was It was a back and forth urban warfare. You could not trust anybody. There were no non-combatants in that particular battle. This is all that I've gleaned from him talking about it. Uh, it was much easier for him to talk about, say, the Incheon landing, which, uh, uh, as you uh, and I have discussed off off air, uh, he was in the, the, the LST right next to Baldomero Lopez, who was his best friend. Uh, I, I think they were both part American. I know my father's a considerable amount of American Indiana. Uh, Lopez uh, might have been as well. The, the, the Marines attract uh, several different ethnic groups. One is the Irish, of which you and I obviously are. Uh, two is American Indians. And three is Southwestern Hispanics. And uh, they are a very tight group. Anyway, Baldy got killed that very next morning when he ate his own grenade after being shot coming up over the edge. Uh, he could talk about that. He could talk about the reservoir that was outside in 20, 30 below zero. Uh, Seoul, he doesn't talk about. And I suspect most Marines who were there don't talk about it either. Now, in the last Stan's book, which I'm holding right here for people who are watching on Skype, i got to make sure it's on the camera. Last Stan, it includes Shiloh. Now, the family, Fetching Mrs. Hewitt's family has a connection with Shiloh because her great-great-grandfather almost botched the battle by failing to deliver to Lou Wallace a message from Grant. And so General Neffler is not really a hero of the Civil War. But I just finished Ron Chernow's book. And if anybody ever embodied physical courage, and I mean, there are lots of people who have Douglas MacArthur wrongly called Dugout Doug Patton. But I mean, Grant and Stonewall Jackson together, Grant was simply indomitable. So writing up the Battle of Shiloh for Last Stands must have taken you into Chernow's biography and to that amazing Shiloh literature. 
Oh, absolutely. I read Grant's book, obviously. That's one of the cornerstones of military literature right up there with Caesar's commentaries. Uh, I read Chernow's book. I read Ron White's book. Uh, I read a whole bunch of, of books to, to get to this. What interested me as a cultural rather than a military historian was how many people were at that battle who later became very, very famous, among them uh, Stanley of Stanley and Livingston fame, fighting on the Confederate side. I didn't know uh, that. Am Oh, yes, he was right there in the middle of it. Uh, he he wrote about it quite quite eloquently. Also, there was Ambrose Bierce, the famous uh, dyspe dyspeptic uh, Ambrose Bierce, who later worked for the San Francisco Examiner, which I did uh, myself uh, years ago, and then disappeared into Mexico and was never seen again. Uh, there was a great number of literary people involved in that battle. So we have some striking images of it that come from non-military sources. But Grant was amazing. I think this there's no argument to me that Grant was the greatest American who ever lived. And, and, I, and I may even put him over Lincoln in just the sheer willpower that won the Civil War, which was embodied in Grant. And the realize I call Shiloh a last stance, which is somewhat controversial, is had Grant lost on the first day of Shiloh, Grant and Sherman, by the way, who was there and who discounted the reports of a large Confederate force coming towards them that morning, uh, uh, April morning, uh, that would have been the end of it for the Union. Grant, you never would have heard of Grant again. He was already excoriated after they won for the bloodshed, which was which was incomparable in American history up to that point. Uh, Sherman would have gone back to the nuthouse. Grant would have been considered a drunk who'd got washed out for the second time. And that, that would have been the end of it. And had the Confederate general, Al Albert Sidney Johnston, lived, I think you had a very, very different outcome to that war. And it was, as, as uh, Wellington said of, of Waterloo, it was a, a damned close-run thing. I, uh, my favorite line out of... of uh... Grant by Chernow is Sherman saying he stood by, about Grant. He stood by yeah. me when I was crazy. I stood by him when he was drunk. So That's friendship, right. courage is actually reciprocal. But let's talk about the last stand, the book, the, the battles that you chose. Thermopylae. I had Stephen Pressfield on last week about his new book. Mm -hmm. He's written the 300, uh, the, the Gates of Fire about the 300. Uh, Cani, which is really a massacre. I'm going to look forward to this. Masada, I know about. Warsaw, it's interesting that you pair the great two Jewish stands and massacres. Um, I don't know much about Roland. I know about the Battle of Hastings. The last stand of the Swiss Guard, I have no idea what you're talking about, Michael. We'll come back to that. <laughs> I can't even pronounce the siege of whatever that is. How do you say That's that? Sigetvar, Sigetvar. How do you expect a radio host to say that, Michael? S oh, well, say I, it again, Sigetvar? Sigetvar, yes. It's, uh, you got to brush up on your Hungarian, Hugh. That's the, the key. The Alamo, I know, because John Wayne in 1963, when I'm a lad, come, I always say 1956 is the best year to have been born, because you can watch Batman with unabashed non-citicism, and you can go to the Alamo and be thrilled, right? The Alamo yeah, is yes. John... Shiloh, Bighorn, not sure about Custer after reading Chernow. Was that courage or was that just stupidity, Michael? Uh, Custer was one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. Uh, I, this is the longest chapter in the book, 10,000 words. I am something of a Custer buff. I have very close to me here in my library a bunch of books about Custer. I, I think Custer is so interesting and his ending was so spectacularly dramatic. Uh, and it came at the time of the American centennial. Uh, 
very few people know that Custer's plan was to win that battle, go back to New York and win the Democrat nomination for president. So in one sense, the, the Bighorn was the world's worst campaign event. But what a fascinating man. Talk about Stone Courage. And by the way, he and Grant did not get along. Not at, at all. all at, at all, at all. They hated each other's guts. And the guy that saved Custer was little Phil Sheridan, the little Irish immigrant boy who did, wasn't much when he was standing up, but he looked great on a horse and, and was the master of the cavalry, which won the Shenandoah campaign and, and led to uh, Appomattox. Let me also and tell people, Rourke's Drift and Khartoum, great movies. Mm -hmm. By the way, your last stands all make great movies. The yes, Battle of <laughs> the Stalingrad, which is a Sniper at the Gate, that movie is really an amazing. And then you close with The Chosen Reservoir. So uh, we're going to come back and talk about these over the next few months, but I want to, for the purposes of introducing people to The Last Stand, when you sat down to do this, authors have a purpose. What was yours? Uh, you write about what's, what interests you. Uh, uh, this book came after Devil's Pleasure Palace and Fiery Angel, which are cultural histories about the, the war we are fighting against uh, uh, communism, socialism, and, and the just general malignant left. And uh, coming out of that, I realized that with this this father that I had, uh, I could combine cultural history with military history and try to write a narrative about what it means to be a man. In fact, the first chapter of the book is called To Die For, and it's the philosophical underpinning of the book. Uh, what is it that we would die for? If there's nothing worth living for, is there anything worth dying for? And conversely, if there's nothing worth dying for, what's the point of life? Uh, these are hard questions for pampered Americans of the early 21st century. So I spent a good deal of time on that. And uh, Hugh, you'll enjoy this. I actually read most of that chapter at Hillsdale College just before the lockdown started uh, to a very appreciative audience of, of students there. So uh, thanks to Larry Arn and the uh, crew at Hillsdale for giving me a chance to take that on a test drive early in the process. So uh, what is courage? Uh, I think it's something you don't think about. I think it's something that every man is uh, on a level when you were a little boy and you were getting killed in battles with, you know, the evil Nazis and the, and the Jeb. Well, in our generation, it was the Japanese and the Nazis. I, I don't know who little boys fight today, but you wonder how would you die if you had to? And I make a statement in the book that says, you know, the old, uh, uh, cowards die a thousand deaths, heroes die, but one, I said, little boys die a thousand deaths. So they only have to die one time in actual fight. I think you don't think about it. Everyone's afraid until the last minute. But when you go back through history, not just the Greeks, which was rather spectacular self-immolation, but the poor Romans at Cannae, knowing they were doomed, just inexorably doomed by Hannibal's outmaneuvering of their two idiotic consul generals, both of whom were killed in that fight, uh, they fought to the end, and Tacitus tells us at one point they found a Roman soldier face down in the mud with the ear and the nose of one of his Numidian opponents in his teeth. They just fought to the end because that's really all you can do. I just think it's an unconscious, innately masculine thing that, uh, uh, that history shows us time and again is how men react to this kind of stress. One of the early glimpses of stone-cold courage that you give in Last Stands, Michael Walsh, is of the two Roman legions under Octavius and Mark Antony uh, squaring off against each other. And I did not know this. Absolutely mm. silent. Now, I know my Roman yeah. history pretty well, but I did not know that detail. 
absolutely silent. No yebel, rebel yells, no union cheers, no founding of the at the opening of Gladiator. If people have seen it, the noise unleash hell. Just two professional sets of warriors gone off to battle. Yes, it's uh, the Battle of Mutina, and it, it pitted Antony against uh, Octavian. Uh, before they became allies in the final act of the Civil War, and then, of course, they became enemies again. Uh, but that comes from contemporary Roman historians. Uh, the Romans wore those high plumes, and they they tried. To, they weren't very big. Uh, they were always at a physical disadvantage against, say, the Germans, who were much bigger than they were, and they were afraid of the Germans. Their own discipline kept them victorious, mostly against the Germans. But in this case, they were they were brothers in arms. They didn't want to fight each other, but they had to. And that the grim silence of that battle is absolutely eerie and terrifying, I think. It's a vivid, vivid image. Let me also ask you about whether or not courage is learned or, as it came through in Chernow's grant, you never quite know who's going to have it until the shots start to fire. And so if you haven't heard a shot fired in anger like I haven't, you have no idea uh, whether or not you're a coward or a courageous man. How do you learn it? I don't think you do. I think it's I think it's innate in every man. I think... We underestimate our younger generation because they're so so uh, pacified by feminist culture. Uh, by the way, my next book, uh, my kind of compliment book to this book will be about women and, and feminine co- culture and contributions to Western civilization. Quite different. Uh, Grant just never thought about it. If you read his own memoirs, he, he marched right out onto the battlefield. He was shot. Uh, bullet bounced off the scabbard and sent his sword flying. Sherman sustained several minor wounds. Uh, horses were shot out from underneath him. But you never see in Grant, which is so, such an admirable quality, that he even thought about his own physical safety. Uh, neither does Caesar, by the way. Whenever the battle's going bad and Caesar's telling, Caesar puts on his big red cloak and walks to the front of the line and says, here I am, come and get me. Uh, They just had a belief in their own invulnerability. But if death came, it came randomly. There was nothing you could do about it. Uh, Custer believed in Custer luck right into the end. He was shot multiple times as he was crashing his horse through Confederate lines and always walked away without a scratch until the the last time when what had worked for him all his life didn't work anymore. In fact, I will remind people, General Lee would often try and rally troops en route, and he would go to the front until his troops would say, General Lee to the rear, General Lee to the rear, until they screamed him back and he would be led back to the back. Now, I want to go back to something you said worth dying for. My friend Archbishop Chaput has a new book coming up. It is titled, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, Things Worth Dying For. It's a meditation Ah. on if you actually, I want you to repeat what you said. I've read his book already. He'll be a guest of mine. Courage actually comes from conviction, right? Isn't that yes. actually what courage comes from? I think it comes from a sense of duty, too. Uh, no man wants to be considered a coward. The Romans d- dealt with cowards very drastically, as you know. They executed them. So if you were caught running from the battlefield, you were just as doomed as, as, uh, as if you had stayed. But the key about battlefield courage, I think, from all the soldiers I've known and talked to, my own brother is a Navy uh, officer as well, with long military tradition in my family, uh, you you do your duty because your duty is not to you or your country or your wife or your children. It's to the guy next to you on the line. The Romans, the whole function of both the phalanx and the maniples was to defend the man to your right. And, and, and when you break the line, you endanger the lives of every other man. And that's a huge moral burden 
for anybody. And I think that's the thing that keeps men in line as long as it does. Uh, very, if, if you break ranks and run, you will die. If you follow your training and stay there and fight, you have a chance of getting out. After all, most soldiers, A, are not at the tip of the spear, B, are not in combat, and C, survive it. So your chances of getting, I know this is cold comfort when you're there, but the chances of you getting killed are relatively low, even in the, the most vicious pitched battles. Uh, but the key is to stand fast, and, and that's something that uh, we, we can't forget. If we're now, again, I, have not, I haven't finished Last Stand, so I have no idea if you interweave your vast knowledge of culture into this. But the best movie portrayal of Courage is Saving Private Ryan, going ashore. I mean, it opens with Courage, going ashore at Normandy. And yes. Tom Hanks, where's the rally point? Anybody, anywhere but here. I love that line. But his handshake. It's not the absence of fear, which would no, actually no. be sociopathic, right? Right. No, you don't want a guy who wants to get killed on the battlefield. You don't want that guy in your unit. You want a guy that's going to make sure you get home. Uh, and and that's that movie is so stunning in its depiction. And, and veterans wept when they saw that, as I recall, when it first came out. They said, this is the closest thing to reality that we've ever seen. Yeah, I sat next to an older man in a Beverly Hills cinema who sobbed through the whole thing. Obviously a World War II veteran. Obviously yeah. a World War II veteran. So uh, as you go back through this, has it changed from time immemorial? You are back in ancient Rome and you are as recent as chosen. I don't know that you do anything on Vietnam, although you could do Khe Sanh at Vietnam. That was a pretty remarkable display of courage. On, on uh, There were lots of battles in Marines uh, and Army fought in Vietnam. And of course, Fallujah, one and two. And you'll find lots of battles today where there's a lot of courage. And you'll find courage in the skies and on the seas. Did you happen to see the new Tom Hanks movie about the Battle of the North Atlantic? No, I have not yet. Well, no. it's just courage in tin boats because there are just a thousand U-boats out there shooting at these convoys. So did it change over the period of time? Last Stands begins early and runs over the sweep of history. Has it changed at all? No, I don't think it's changed at all. And I think people who argue that we'll never have to confront that again, there won't be massed infantry battles, uh, you know, on the plains outside of uh, Germany where the Soviet tanks are rolling. I think that's wrong. I think uh, even if we live in a push button age of warfare where we can destroy ourselves, the Chinese and whoever else is the enemy du jour by a push of a button, most people are still going to survive that and they're still going to be hand to hand combat. If that happens in a post-apocalyptic world. That hand-to-hand -hand combat takes you right back to Kane. It takes you right back to the nose of your opponent between your teeth. And you're going to want men that can fight that because they're the only ones who can. And to discount it and to dismiss it as an artifact of ancient history is so typical in a way of, of the way Americans tend to think. They all kind of agree with Henry Ford that history is bunk. Uh, and let's just hope we'd ever have to find out whether that's true or but not. But, you know, military people don't. Last Stands reminded me of what I learned in Chernow and what I learned from General Mattis is that, uh, Chernow's Grant, is that the great generals read constantly in military history. Grant could yes. recite with detail Napoleon's campaigns, though he despised the man. Mattis is a walking, talking encyclopedia of generals in battles. So I think to a certain extent you can study tactics, but you can only live courage. I mean, that's what they try and teach you at the military academies and in basic training and at OCS and at Paris Island, if you're an enlisted man or Marine Corps Depot, they try and teach it to you, but you can only learn military battles by studying military battles. 
Uh, yeah, that and one other thing that I, as, as a cultural uh, uh, historian, I like to get my oar in here. Both Grant and Custer were very well read uh, in terms of literature. And also in terms of the theater, they both enjoyed going to see plays. Uh, you see this constantly during Grant's time in New York, uh, during Custer's time in New York, when he was trying to get some financial stuff going. Uh, they're always going to the theater. It, it, this has been a lot. Maybe uh, Mattis, I think, understands this uh, as well. But American military officers found comfort and lessons in not only historians, but in creative people like Shakespeare. Uh, the, I guarantee you Grant was an expert in Shakespeare. I, most Americans were in the 19th century. But the whole notion of, of the culture that they're fighting for is something that's sometimes discounted when you just deal in terms of tanks and planes and infantry regiments. But uh, acculturation was a very important part of the military upbringing and as, as you know and I know certainly from growing up with marine officers and being around I grew up actually uh, on the MCRD base in San Diego when as, as a small boy uh, these are very well-read intelligent and in my case <laughs> Jesuit educated half of partly American Indian Irish warriors so uh, I, does it get any worse than that? I I, I don't know. I mean, that's well, I, I did not grow up in a military family, though my father had served. I, I, but I will tell people a story I've often told. The first time I met my father-in-law, Colonel Helmer, I sat down, and I was picking up his daughter to take her out on a date, and we were 22. First question he asked me, first question, what do you know about Chesty Puller? And he's sitting in a chair with a, with a bookcase full of Marines, and I had to say nothing. And so I got, you know, he kind of waved that off. And then when I showed up to get married, he looked at my shoes at the Rance House Chapel in Pendleton. You at least could have shined your shoes. Marines are different people. I want to close this way. You are also a music critic. Yeah. To what extent does music encourage, is music in last stands? Are there uh, connections? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, I talk about, for example, uh, Brooks' cantata called Arminius, which was about Hermann, the the uh, German warrior who destroyed the Romans uh, at the Teutoburg Forest. Uh, uh, but I left it out mostly because it just didn't quite fit into the whole overall thing. I will say this. Most armies go to war with a band. Custer had a band. The Romans made noises. They had trumpets and uh, things similar to our French horns. Uh, the Chinese attacked with cymbals and, and gongs. My father said the eeriest thing about seeing them coming down the hill was this unearthly noise they made. Music or noise is so much part of the battlefield environment. Uh, it's almost worth a whole book, but uh, I've got a few others ahead of that right now, I must say. So how is Last Stands doing? Are you surprised by its reception? Uh, everyone's thrilled. It's selling, uh, I think the last time we looked, a thousand copies a week. Uh, it's been at the top of multiple bestseller lists uh, on Amazon. We we sold out, in fact, on day one. Uh, I was very pleased to see, and in a way it hurt a bit because it was the holidays and with the COVID panic, uh, it was hard to get it back into stock as quickly as we wanted it to. But it's fully in stock now. It's selling as my editor said, like iPhones. And it really seems to be resonating, Hugh, in, a, in the breasts of uh, women especially. I get letters every day saying, I loved this book. I heard you read it on Audible. I went out and bought three copies and gave them to every man I know. I, I, we're kind of starting a movement here, I hope, of a, a, a masculine recrudescence, and that would be a very good thing for America in these per perilous times. Did you read the book for, for the audiobook? Yes, I did. Yeah. So the pronunciation will be there. 
Oh, well, it's as good as I can, as close as I can get. I mean, I, uh, yeah, it's the, the, the earlier. Oh, books. I mean, Michael, you've just changed my approach. I, I listen to Grant and it takes hours and hours and hours. But the reason to listen to books, if you're a great reader when you're young, you can't pronounce anything. And because you know, you don't know how to pronounce things. And so as you, what's this battle that I can't pronounce? What's that all about? Sigetvar. It's a battle between the Hungarians and the Croatians against Suleiman the Magnificent, the Turkish commander in the in the 16th century. Okay, uh, so a, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to listen. I'm gonna go buy. I got your I got it for free, but now I'm gonna go buy your audiobook, Michael Walsh. Oh, thank because, you, thank you. Because I love to listen. I didn't know that you had read it. I love it. The guy who read Grant was just terrific. But uh, when authors read their own works, unless they're doing it as a did you try and put some drama in it? Yes, I do. I even do uh, some a small bit of accents, trying to reproduce my father's native Bostonian honk uh, during the parts where I quote him. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm I'm a linguist, so there's uh, you know I had eleven languages in the Fiery Angel, so that was a pretty tough one. Uh, but uh, you'll get to hear me read in multiple tongues in this book, I must say. Michael Walsh, thank you for the long interview. We will be back as we come back to various books, and I I encourage everyone to go out and get. Uh, last stands, why men fight when all is lost. Thank you, Michael Walsh. Thanks, you.